Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 88, Space Shuttle Flight 21, STS-51J. A fleet complete. Last time, we talked about the flight of Discovery on STS-51I and its somewhat improvised activities. From unstrapping from the cockpit seats while still on the launch pad in order to take a nap, to just going for it and grabbing onto a stranded satellite by hand, STS-51I is definitely going to stick in my memory. But for this next flight, STS-51J, we'll be talking about something that the Department of Defense would prefer sticks in nobody's memory, the shuttle's second entirely classified mission. As usual, classified missions present certain difficulties to space nerds like us who just want to hear all the fun, nitty-gritty details about what went down. Even a simple PAMD commsat deploy can be interesting, when the sun shield has to be manually shoved out of place with a robot arm suffering a control software failure, as we learned last time. But with the insistence of the Department of Defense that this flight remains secret, we'll have to make do with what we've got. Actually, what's especially frustrating about this classified flight is it doesn't seem to be classified for any good reason. The payload itself, which we'll discuss once we're on orbit, wasn't secret, and even had been publicly announced several years earlier. Part of this was due to just a blanket policy of fully classifying all DoD flights. But according to a contemporary issue of Aviation Week, the secrecy almost seems to be one of the flight's experiments. This actually isn't the craziest idea. Let's say that you're the DoD, and you've got a big queue full of top-secret spacecraft waiting for their ride into orbit. You were happy with your expendable launch vehicles, which didn't draw a ton of attention and didn't have a bunch of people on board taking pictures. But NASA somehow talked you into supporting their space shuttle program, and now you're being pressured into using it to launch 100% of your payloads. You've worked with NASA before, but you just don't quite see eye-to-eye on everything. It's a different worldview, a different culture. One that's very open and not very conducive to secrecy. Given that scenario, it's probably worth the hassle to treat a non-sensitive flight as if it were sensitive, and then see what leaks out. Obviously, zero leaks is best, but if something were to leak, it'd be good to have an idea of what sort of information it might be. I'm not sure if this was actually an explicit goal of the DoD, or if this even occurred to anyone over there. It's possible I'm just reading too much into snippets of information from 1985, but it kind of makes sense to me. So since it was decided to keep this mission under wraps, we'll be forced to sort of talk around it rather than really dig into the day-to-day activities like we usually do. One thing I can say for certain is that with STS-51J, we meet a new member of the cast of The Space Above Us, who will be with us to the very end. OV-104, Space Shuttle Atlantis. The fourth of the space-worthy orbiters, Atlantis was the last that was expected to be built, at least with the budget where it was. There were some ideas floated of a dedicated DoD orbiter, or eventually next-gen orbiters that would look the same but have significantly upgraded systems, but that's all speculation. Atlantis was expected to round out the fleet. The spacecraft was named in honor of the RV Atlantis, a research vessel used by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. The RV Atlantis has sailed over 1.3 million miles, all in the name of furthering our understanding of the ocean. With the number of unique science experiments flown in the shuttle program, OV-104 Atlantis was sure to make its own great scientific contributions. 
Much like Discovery, Atlantis benefited from the lessons learned during the construction of Columbia and Challenger, leading to a significantly shorter construction period. Work began on OV-104 on March 3, 1980, and was completed just over four years later on April 10, 1984, right in the middle of the STS-41C rescue of Solar Max. And while that isn't super far off from the six to seven calendar years that it took to build Columbia and Challenger, less than half of the hours of labor were required. A big part of that is due to the increased use of thermal blankets in place of the Low Temperature Reusable Surface Insulation, or LRSI, thermal tiles. If you look closely at photos of Columbia and Challenger as compared to the later orbiters, you can see that the older orbiters have their own distinct texture thanks to the numerous small white tiles on the upper part of the structure as opposed to the large smooth thermal blankets used later on. And since placing all of those tiles took forever and had to be done by hand very carefully, using the thermal blankets saved a lot of time. Atlantis would go on to fly 33 missions, second only to Discovery. And as I mentioned, Atlantis will be with us to the very end, flying the final mission of the space shuttle program, STS-135. Since classified missions don't give us a ton to talk about, let's take a little time to talk about one of the more interesting primary sources I've recently discovered, the Johnson Space Center News Roundup. This is an internal newsletter, the type that roughly 2,000% of us ignore at our own workplaces. But since it's an internal newsletter at the home of NASA's human spaceflight program, it's pretty interesting. And through some miracle, there is an enormous archive of this available online, stretching all the way back to the 1960s. I haven't had as much time as I'd like to to dig through this source, but every time I do, it's fascinating. It gives a detailed look at what people on the ground were thinking about, worrying about, and even considering eating for lunch. Seriously, the cafeteria menu is in there. On October 1st, 1985, keep an eye out for the beef noodle soup. So let's take a quick peek at Volume 24, Issue 17, and see what was on the mind of JSC workers on September 27th, 1985. Front and center was the Space Transportation System Operations Contract, or STESOC. This was a massive effort to consolidate the activities of 16 different contractors down into one big contract. There are a few reasons to do this. For one thing, it was simpler for NASA management to deal with. Rather than wrangling over a dozen different companies, all with their own little quirks, there was just one. This streamlining of interfaces also had the potential to reduce dangerous miscommunications, since there were theoretically fewer chances for a game of telephone to mangle something important or for a critical message to not bubble up. It also meant that there would be less managerial overhead, which had the potential for significant savings. Lastly, the new contract was expected to take on the responsibilities of a number of jobs that were currently performed by government employees, who would now be free to work on planning space station freedom. This space station was planned to launch in the late 1980s or early 1990s, but instead sort of petered out and then morphed into the International Space Station. But that's a topic for another day. STESOC was a Herculean effort, which was presented in 3,600 pounds of three-ring binders, and represented NASA's desire to streamline shuttle operations as they began to focus on new things. It shows how the shuttle missions really were being viewed as routine, and the workforce was gearing up for more flights than ever, 
as the shuttle became a tool of a larger program rather than the main focus. One reason these internal newsletters are especially interesting is that with the Challenger accident growing inexorably closer, it provides a glimpse into an alternate timeline where the accident never happened. In an item detailing crew announcements, that timeline includes STS-61J in August of 1986, which would have been commanded by John Young on his seventh flight and deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. Or STS-61K in September of 1986, which would have seen Owen Garriott fly for a third time. I've always found cancelled space shuttle missions to be a fascinating topic, so details like this always catch my eye. And on the topic of the accident, another interesting, if painful, item that grabbed my attention talked about how teacher in space selectee Krista McAuliffe and her backup, Barbara Morgan, had reported to Johnson on September 9th to begin their training. The press followed them through the routine NASA onboarding process, including stuff like getting their badges made and flight suit measurements, and then trying out the different types of food that would be available on orbit. Much like my coverage of the Apollo 1 fire, when talking about Challenger, I try to walk a line between providing relevant and interesting historical and human detail, while not just rolling around in the depressing drama and turning into something you'd expect from the History Channel. That's not what I'm trying to do. With that said, there was one heartbreaking detail that I just couldn't get out of my head. They told Krista McAuliffe that she'd be able to keep her flight suit after the mission. That one hurt. But one last item from the roundup to end on something that's a little less bleak is how Columbia was being retrofitted to better study a flight regime that the shuttle excelled at, hypersonic flight. As I mentioned in the X-15 episodes approximately 3 billion years ago, for supersonic flight there was the sound barrier, a seemingly insurmountable structural challenge. And for hypersonic flight there was the thermal barrier, with a similar problem. The X-15 and the space shuttle were triumphant victories over the thermal barrier, utilizing state-of-the-art thermal protection systems. But there was still barely any real-world data about operating in this flight regime, at least compared to the ocean of data on something like subsonic and supersonic flight. So to better understand the thermal issues associated with hypersonic flight, the Shuttle Infrared Lee-Side Temperature Sensing Experiment was developed. SILTS, as the experiment was soon known, was installed in a bulbous case at the tip of Columbia's tail, allowing it to look down from the back of the orbiter and study conditions during re-entry using infrared cameras. Imagine that camera from the tail of the airplane that you sometimes see in the little TV in the back of the seats, but it's infrared, and it's the space shuttle. While silts would eventually be removed, the pod would remain in place and became one of Columbia's unique features. But that's enough of old newsletters, let's get on with the mission. Flying Atlantis for the first time would be a lucky crew consisting of two pilots, two mission specialists, and one payload specialist, all of them with military backgrounds. Commanding STS-51J was Bo Bobko. We know Bobko as the pilot of STS-6 and commander of STS-51D. For a little bit of space trivia, with this flight, Bobko becomes the first person to fly on three orbiters. Challenger, Discovery, and Atlantis, and the only person to fly on the first mission of two orbiters, Challenger and Atlantis. This is his third and final flight. Joining Bobco up front as pilot was Ron Grabe. Ronald Grabe was born on June 13, 1945 in New York, New York. 
As a kid, he attended the Stuyvesant High School in New York, which, despite its impressive academic record, will forever be known to me as that school they filmed Hackers in. After high school, he moved on to the U.S. Air Force Academy, earning a bachelor's in engineering science and studying aeronautics as a Fulbright Scholar in West Germany the following year. Grabe returned to the States where he learned how to fly, going on to fly several different types of jet aircraft in operational and test roles, including 200 combat missions over Vietnam. He was selected as an astronaut in 1980, and this is his first of four flights. Moving on to the mission specialists, mission specialist one was David Hilmers. David Hilmers was born on January 28, 1950, in Clinton, Iowa. He earned a bachelor's in math from Cornell, and a master's in electrical engineering and the degree of electrical engineer, which seems to be sort of like a PhD, uh, both of those from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. After Cornell, he joined the Marines, who taught him how to fly and sent him all over the place, including to the Mediterranean and Japan. He was stationed in El Toro, California, when he was selected as an astronaut in 1980, and this is his first of four flights. Mission Specialist 2 was Robert Stewart, who we know from STS-41B, where Bruce McCandless went for his famous MMU ride. This is Stewart's second and final flight. And last but not least was Payload Specialist 1, William Pales. William Pales was born on June 26, 1952 in Hackensack, New Jersey. Pales earned a bachelor's in computer science from the U.S. Air Force Academy and served in a variety of roles in the Air Force following that. Everything from HC-130 rescue pilot to manager of an operating systems software development team. Pales' flight is notable because he represents the second and last member of the Air Force's manned spaceflight engineering program to actually fly in space. I talk a little bit more about that program in episode 82, which covered STS-51C if you'd like to know more. This is his only spaceflight. When October 3rd, 1985 rolled around, not many people knew it, but it was launch day. As usual with classified missions, the launch date, and especially the exact launch time, were a closely guarded secret. Why, I'm not entirely sure, since anyone could see the launch take place, it was even broadcast live on CNN, but I guess it would deprive other countries the opportunity to maneuver their own space assets in response, perhaps trying to get a better look at Atlantis' activities. Anyway, even if the launch time was known, it would have been wrong. Due to a slightly problematic liquid hydrogen pre-valve, liftoff was delayed by 22 minutes and 30 seconds. But at 11.15 a.m. and 30 seconds, Atlantis sprang off the launch pad for the first time and the secretive mission was underway. Ascent proceeded normally from the crew's point of view, but there were a couple of minor hitches with the main engines, including oscillating pressure in engine number one's high-pressure fuel turbopump, and high pressure in some gimbling actuators in engines 1 and 2. Nothing overly concerning, though, and after a still-classified number of minutes, the engine shut down, the external tank was jettisoned, and Atlantis was on orbit. So what do we know about this mission? Well, a little more than some other classified missions. That's because, for some reason, everybody seems to know all about this payload. If I understand correctly, the payload itself wasn't actually classified, but as discussed earlier, there was a desire to make all DoD missions secret by default, and maybe use this as some sort of practice run. So we get all of this hassle as a result. 
And to add insult to injury, the payload isn't really even all that interesting. Riding in Atlantis's payload bay were two Block 3 spacecraft for the Defense Satellite Communication System, or DSCS. Basically just a geo-based communications network for use by the military. I will say that it's kind of neat that they both shared a single inertial upper stage for their boost to geostationary transfer orbit. After all, geo is pretty far away, and it's best to carpool. Both satellites were sent on their way, seemingly without incident, on the first day of the flight. For the rest of the mission, the crew occupied their time with Earth photography and a couple of mid-deck experiments that I know nothing about other than their names. There was AMOS, which stood for Air Force Maui Optical Site Calibration, CST, which stood for Contrast Sensitivity Tester, MARC-DN, which was Measurement of Atmospheric Radiance Camera, Day-slash-Night, and a few other experiments that also were oriented outwards. Looking inward were the Reaction Time Perception Analyzer and Visual Function Tester 1 and 2. Thrilling. Lastly, Clouds, Cloud Logic to Optimize Use of Defense Systems, caught my eye because Cloud Logic means something very different these days. Real quick, on that note, remember kids, when someone tries to sell you on cloud technology, just replace the word cloud with someone else's computer. But I digress. After only 4 days, 1 hour, 44 minutes, and 38 seconds, Atlantis touched down at Edwards Air Force Base, marking one of the shortest ever space shuttle flights. It wasn't the most thrilling mission, but it did welcome Atlantis to the fleet. And since some of the photos from the flight were later declassified, we get to see what sort of secret secrets are normally kept under wraps. So that's kind of cool. Also, fun fact, in this one flight, Atlantis flew over 1.6 million miles, already beating the 1.3 million miles of its namesake. Whether or not there were any interesting problems, little hardware snags, or even a contingency EVA, you know, the bread and butter of the show, we'll never know for sure. But Atlantis completed its first mission successfully, and at the end of the day, I guess that's all we need to know. Next time, we're back to good old unclassified missions with tons of data to dig through. Space Lab is back, but with a somewhat unusual arrangement. While the orbiter will still be managed from Houston, Space Lab and all of its experiments will be controlled from West Germany. But I guess that's fair. After all, they did pay for the flight. Oh, and I hope this crew isn't too claustrophobic, because with eight people on board, we'll be meeting the largest shuttle crew of the entire program. Before we go, I wanted to take a quick moment to relay a few show notes. As usual, if you ever have any questions, comments, feedback, or just want to say hi, I can be reached via email at jp at thespaceabove.us. You can also follow me or shoot me a message on Twitter where I'm spaceaboveus. I dropped the the to save a few characters. Hopefully by this point, it should be obvious that I have abandoned the show's Facebook page since I deleted my personal account, but I'll just remind you again in case you are hopefully checking for updates. Also, most of this information is available on the show's website, thespaceabove.us. Even if you knew all these details, it might be worth bookmarking the website, because I've been hard at work documenting my sources and book lists in a more readable form, and that should be up in a few weeks. And if you've ever been to the website, you'll notice something new. 
When I started the show, it was just a way for me to share my passion for spaceflight, learn about some obscure missions, and have some fun. And, you know, it's still that, but it's sort of become something more. Several generous listeners have asked for methods to donate or support the show, and I've finally created a way to do that. If you go to the show's website, again, thespaceabove.us, you will see a PayPal donation button. You will also see a link to the show's new Patreon page, patreon.com slash thespaceaboveus. The show will always be available for free, and will continue regardless of if anyone actually uses the donate button or Patreon campaign. But if you'd like to use them, there they are. The Patreon campaign also comes with a few extra little goodies. For a buck a month, you get access to a Discord chat room where we can talk about space and you can bounce questions off me or whatever. If you move up one tier, you get space movie DVD-style commentaries by yours truly. These are just MP3 files that you play at the same time as your movie, so it's like I'm talking over it, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style. If you've ever wondered what I'd have to say about Hollywood's take on spaceflight, as well as hear me stumble over myself without a script and editing, now is your chance. I've always found it a little annoying when podcasts include just a few too many reminders about the donation methods, so you won't hear about them a lot from me. But, well, they exist. I want to extend a sincere thank you to everyone who's ever listened to the show. You made this possible. Well, with all that out of the way, I think all that's left to say is, Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. (laughs) 